0: struggling with something you know this shows that you know food can have an impact in some cases you know and that's very empowering for people because it's something that people have a lot of control over you know we can we have a lot of control over what we put in our mouths and if you find a direct connection between what you're putting in your mouth and you know the levels of pain you're experiencing or the fatigue or disease or you know that gives people a lot of control over their their health.
1: Welcome to The Better Podcast, where we provide guests and topics and a little touch of humor to fuel your health and longevity. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrell, founder and CEO of Better Health. Our guest today is Anahad O'Connor, a health reporter from The New York Times and bestselling author. Some of his New York Times articles include how fermented foods may alter your microbiome, fasting diets are gaining acceptance, and cutting sugar improves children's health in just 10 days. His new book, "The Ten Things You Need to Eat," and more than hundred easy and delicious ways to prepare them is also now
0: available. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Excellent. So, your background here—you know—how do you come to write about things like fermented foods and you know children's health? Like, what's inspired you to, to get here to, to you know write about this and become a,
0: an author on these topics? Yeah. So, just to go back a, a little bit, you know, I am one of uh, seven kids. My parents, when I was growing up, they were very health conscious. Back when I was born in the 80s, my mother and father were both vegetarians. Um, you know, They were into yoga and meditation and just very uh, conscious of their health and the world around them. And so they raised my siblings and I to be very health conscious as well. So you know, I was one of the the few kids in New York City, I think, um, <laughs> in my grades in my grade school, you know, who knew what spirulina was and who knew, you know, <laughs> what echinacea and all these different herbs and things were just because my parents were into that and and they raised me to you know to think about food and, and nutrition. And so you know, I went off to college thinking I was going to become a doctor, and then I you know started writing for uh, my college newspaper at the time, the Yale Daily News, covering the science and health beat you know, just as something that that would be an extracurricular to have on my application for medical school. And then I just discovered that I really enjoyed writing about science and health. And I got an internship at the New York Times in the science department. I uh, was writing about, you know, science and health for the Times and would just get so much feedback from the public. And I was just like, wow, I thought, you know, going to medical school, you know, I'd be able to have a big impact on people as a doctor, but, you know, I can reach literally millions of people with a single article and people would write to me and ask questions. And I could see people were so interested in, you know, in, in, in this topic of especially food and nutrition. And I thought this is what I'm passionate about as well. So I I just decided to make that my career.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the cool thing about what you just said is you were bred for this, you know, (laughs) your parents started you early and then your interest in neuroscience and becoming a doctor and all that, uh, has led you to this part, and you can actually help a lot of, you know, millions and millions of people, if you're helping those millions and millions of people, and you're getting this great feedback, what's like the most common misconceptions in your mind that people have about their health, especially when it like relates to food, now that you've, you know, published all this work and had this feedback, what do you think of the po- the most popular misconceptions?
0: You know, I, I think it's unfortunate, but there's just a lot of confusion about um, food and nutrition, especially you know, and the numbers bear that out. If you look at the population as a whole, just in the United States, you know, you've got, uh, what, three quarters of the population is overweight or obese, you know, you have something like at least, you know, half the population or tens of millions of, you know, adults who are, you know, pre-diabetic, who have you know, insulin resistance, you know, we're seeing this in, in children. And a lot of that is, you know, you have the leading killers in America are, are things like heart disease and uh, cancer and, you know, diabetes and preventable illnesses. Uh, and so much of this is tied to our lifestyles. And a, one of the biggest factors is what we're eating. And I think a lot of people, you know, just don't understand or, or don't fully grasp, you know, how the food that they're eating is driving a lot of their Health problems, you know, and I see a lot of cases of people who are suffering from different different illnesses, you know, that are really just, uh, I'd say, detracting from their quality of life. And then they change their diet, change what they're eating, just a few foods sometimes, and you know, it has a tremendous uh, impact on their quality of life. And you know, we have to make these choices multiple times a day of what food, you know, do I do I eat, and uh, it's a difficult choice for a lot of people. And I think. Unfortunately people struggle with this and it's not because people are lazy or you know don't want to eat the right foods it's just we live in a i would say in many cases a terrible food environment um and there's a lot of confusion about the right foods for different people.
1: Yeah agreed and and you said the, I think the best thing is we live in this terrible environment because if our climate if California is on fire and there's microplastics in the deepest parts of our ocean what's happening right inside our own bellies? Mm. Uh, and so some of these choices are as- essentially, oftentimes, out of their control because that creates their body to be in fight or flight mode, their reptilian mode. They get it's just like they're running an internal marathon each day to both fight off the cravings, fight off the fact that they're in a stress mode, and so they get cravings for sodium, potassium, and sugar. And of course, the environment, as you just put it, uh, the marketing machine knows this. So that's why at ten, eleven p.m. every night, fire up all your domino's pizza commercials fire up all your salty snacks right they don't have there's no like at 11 o'clock at night you're not seeing any ads for doing yoga and meditation
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah,
1: Uh, although although they they should be right they've got it down to science so then they they cater to that i mean your phone is listening to you alexa is listening to you so they know when you're at your stress and your highest and and if people don't think they're using this data against us they are it's you know diagnosis is the number one selling product of all time. As long as we can keep diagnosing people, we can put a product in front of them. So I I think to your point about misconception on food is I think the misconception on top of what you just said is they don't know how quickly food can reverse their issue. Like you said, just changing a few foods very quickly, how how quickly the body responds to that, that good nature of those foods. So uh, really interesting.
0: Yeah. I think another thing that plays a role in this as well is, uh, is chronic stress. I mean, look, what's you turn on the news, you know, uh, any morning, and it's, you know, all these horrible things that are going on in the world. And, you know, unfortunately, in the middle of this pandemic, there are people who've, you know, lost their jobs, or who've lost loved ones, or who've been sick themselves, who have, you know, unpaid medical bills, you know, issues with social relationships. And one thing I've seen in a lot of studies that look at how, you know, diet affects people, you know, oftentimes, you know, you can put people in a study where you put them on a diet, where you think it's going to have an an impact on their weight or on their health, but if they are in a very stressful environment, um, you have people who tend not to do very well, even when they are, you know, given all the motivation in the world to eat, you know, a a very healthful diet because there's just so much going on, uh, in their lives. And so that's one thing that's been pretty eye-opening for me is that, you know, I've looked at, Big, you know, well controlled, rigorous studies where they compare people on, you know, low carb diet versus, you know, a low fat, healthy plant based diet. That right. Kind of thing. And then they see people, certain people do very well, certain people don't do very well on these different diets. And then they look closely and see, okay, well, why did some people lose 20 pounds on this diet and then other people gain 20 pounds on this diet? And one of the things that these studies have shown is that oftentimes the people that are gaining, you know, the most weight are the people who have, you know, are going through a divorce, people who've, you know, just lost a the job. There's just, you know all these stressful factors that can uh, impact you know our health in addition to what we're eating. One hundred percent, and I think our audience will definitely
1: emulate that response because m- that's what most people when they're working with them. am always like, listen, this isn't your fault. You got to let yourself off the hook here. The social determinants of health are a big deal. The social factors that are happening right now, like you said it best. If I pick up my cell phone right now and I go to social media, I'm probably going to see more things that are going to make me feel bad than feel good. I'm going to turn on the news more things are going to make me feel bad than feel good. And if you're constantly in that fear-based reptilian brain as we go back to it, you're in fight or flight mode. Your body is now designed to prioritize anxiety over and fear over anything else. And then you have the double whammy where anything you're touching or putting in your body is killing off your microbiome, which means that 90% of your body's happy hormone serotonin is made in your gut. You can't even produce that hormone to make you feel happy. So you're physiologically, you can't be happy. And psychologically, you're being bombarded. And no wonder there's this explosion. And, and to your point about the confusion on nutrition, I say, of course, we're confused because everyone, to your point in this study is saying, well, is it the high fat diet? Is that a low carb diet? It's like, it's not the diet. And everybody is different. We're all unique. And so there's uh, 300,000 books written on diet and nutrition. They all can't be right. And they all can't be wrong, mm-hmm. but they may not be right for you. And in my experience, when I speak to folks and I say, and they say, oh, you do this thing with diet and nutrition, they always say the same thing. I say, oh, my diet's pretty good. And I say, yeah, but for whom?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, on the topic of misconceptions, that's a question I, I, I get a lot and hear a lot from people is what's the best diet? And the question is, what's the best diet for you? Because we're not all the same. You know, it's like if someone said, hey, what's the best television show? Well, <laughs> you know there's right. no one television show that's going to make everyone happier hey what's the the sport that i'm going to be the best at it's based on your individual you know genetics your background your there's so much that goes into it there are studies showing that you know if you look at modern hunter gatherers you know these populations of people who live in these you know pockets and corners around the globe where you know they live the same way that they have for thousands of years and they are typically free from a lot of the chronic diseases that are are killing people in Western civilization, you know, they tend not to be obese or overweight. They tend not to develop heart disease unless it's very, very late. They tend to, you know, have very low rates of cancer, diabetes, all those things. Uh, And then you look at the diets that they're eating. You know, there's some that eat high carb diets, some that eat low fat diets, you know, some that, you know, eat a lot of meat, some that eat very little meat, you know, human beings, we're, we're, very adaptable. We can get by on, on different types of food. Pretty easily, but there are certain things that our bodies require, and you know certain levels of exercise and a lot that goes into it. And you know, like you said, a big part of it is uh, you know what's the right diet for you, and that's something people often don't understand. Is they see someone who does very well on one particular diet and think that it's going to work for them and for everyone. Right. It's like no, that's yeah diet for them, not necessarily for you. Amazing point
1: about the adaptation, right? We are adaptable, and that's the inherent recuperative powers that are in the body, and. If you have the diverse microbiome to go along with that, you can adapt even better because those are the, the parts of the adaptogens within your body. <clears throat> and I think it's a really amazing point. If you look at, uh, let's say, Sardinia in Italy, right? The blue zone where they're, they're having pasta each day, they're having a glass of wine, they're having some fresh cheese. They only eat meat on Sundays and they live to hundred years old, <clears throat> seem, seemingly have an amazing lifestyle. You can then go to a Nordic country, and they're eating more meat, and and yet they're also living to hundred. And so we we because we try to dissect everything down, and like that's the exact nature. You know, that's exactly what I should do. We forget the point that well, they're also probably free from a lot of the toxicity and the chemicals. I mean, in 2018 alone, the FDA put allowed 400 food additives. Uh, as you know, in Europe they ban things a little bit quicker than we do, like carragena, uh, uh, which is in all, almost all US formula, but yet it's been banned in Europe for whatever, five or six years or so. I think your body's best free from poison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you can adapt to probably most foods if you just don't have your body constantly under attack. You're not given antibiotics the first thing, as soon as you are born, it's like, nope, here's a bunch of antibiotics, let's kill off all that natural bacteria that your mom had just handed you mm-hmm. um, and all the other things. So I am curious about one thing. You, I think you said that your parents were vegan or vegetarian. Uh, vegetarian. Vegetarian.
0: Have you continued that trend? I have not. I, I was vegetarian until I was until I got to college and discovered bacon. Yeah, <laughs> and I know. Bacon. I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, I I have never really <laughs> consumed much uh, red meat uh, because I, you know, I grew up without it. And I had this, I had this visceral reaction when I would go to grade school. And uh, it was like sloppy Joe's Tuesdays, and the whole entire floor that the cafeteria was on would just reek of sloppy Joe's. And so I just, you know, was always put off by you know, the smell of that. And so I just never really developed, you know, a taste for uh, for red meat. And so to this day, I've never had uh, ribs and uh, pork roast and a lot of other. Um, I've, I've had steak and and some other foods, and I, I can see why people love it, but I just never really developed uh, a, a true love for those. Foods. And so I'd I'd say to this day, you know, my diet has changed. I don't really consume much more bacon any, either. You know, I, that was when I was a college <laughs> kid. I'd say my diet nowadays is I try to be sort of Mediterranean, and I try to eat, uh, you know, a lot of fish, uh, a lot of plants, uh, fermented foods. You know, try to to eat, uh, you know, a decent amount of protein, um, healthy fats. And I'd say this is something that you know it goes back to what you were saying earlier with you know misconceptions about food, and um, you know you look at all these. Uh, hunter-gatherer populations around the globe, where they're not consuming all these additives and things, like that's one thing that's been shown around you know, these healthy populations. Whether it's hunter-gatherers or people in the Mediterranean or people in Nordic countries, when you look at these populations that are relatively free from chronic disease compared to the you know Western uh, societies, there are certain themes. Like number one, they they don't consume many or you know little if any ultra-processed foods, foods that are really to a certain extent, chemistry experiments—you know—that's one thing you see in these <laughs> these very healthy um, populations is they tend to consume very little, if any, ultra-processed foods. They also consume a lot of fiber. You know, very high amounts of fiber, especially the hunter-gatherer groups. You know, they can easily consume you know above fifty grams of of fiber a day with no problem. And I think that's important because you know, fiber tends to be very satiating, it fills us up. And then another thing we're seeing is that it, it feeds your gut. You know, we have, you know, this community of trillions of microbes living in our guts, you know, that produce all these chemicals and enzymes. And you mentioned serotonin and all these other, you know, chemicals that affect us and hormones, and they need to eat and, and they thrive on a high fiber diet. Um, a lot of these, you know, healthy populations also, you know, typically you see they have lots of different fermented foods, that they consume, you know, in Eastern Europe, it's things like sauerkraut. Um, you know, in, in northern Africa, you have things like injera. In Asia, you have foods like uh, you know, kimchi and uh, natto and you know, even soy sauces fermented, you know, kombucha, all these different fermented foods, those are things that you typically don't see in the you know western diets. Um, and so I try to follow certain principles uh, with my diet, which is I try to emulate what these healthy populations are doing to a large extent, you know, and and you know, there's lots of tempting foods out there. So I don't completely deprive myself of, uh, you know, Me neither, brother. Me neither. I, I, New York, you got us a pizza. Yeah. I gotta have pizza. I have pizza <laughs> at least once a week, you know, Me I feel, too. Like, you know, you gotta live a little, but for the most part, I think if you're eating like, you know, 80% or so healthy foods, if your diet is mostly comprised of healthy foods, then, then you're doing better than, you know, 95% of the, of the population. Absolutely. I think, when
1: we talk about fermented foods, that's something that is near and dear to my heart. I'm always telling people, like, go ahead, just try the set the fermented sauerkraut. You know, start there. Kimchi for some can be, you know, depends on how it's made, can be, uh, you know, acquired taste. Mm. Sauerkraut is fairly benign to put put in there. You mentioned something in Northern Africa, which I hadn't heard about. Can you explain that one for me?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's pronounced injera. It's spelled I-N-J-E-R-A. And that is typically found in Ethiopia and um, Eritrea, which is sort of in uh, north uh, northeastern Africa. And that's a food that I eat a lot of. My wife is actually um, part Ethiopian, and that is a food that uh, it's like a sort of flatbread that's made from, uh, it's often called a grain, but I think it's really a seed called teff, which grows in Northern Africa. And it's uh, very high in vitamins and minerals and protein. And they sort of use this to make this really nice sort of uh fermented flatbread that has a very nice like sourdough flavor to it. And instead of using forks and knives, they take pieces of injera and they use it to sort of scoop up their food and and, and eat it. And it's uh it's delicious. And uh this Ethiopian food kind of I think for for someone who hasn't tried it, I think there are, you know it might be considered somewhat similar to South Asian food where there's a lot of nice fragrant spices and flavors, some curry-like foods. But yeah, that's one place where, you know, injera is this fermented flatbread that they consume pretty much with almost every meal. So you and that's one yeah. thing I noticed when I've studied fermented foods is that you look at any culture around the world, um, you know, they historically have had some type of fermented food. Even um the Inuit, you know, they have a fermented food where they actually they take I think it's their, their whale or, or blubber, and they will actually bury it and ferment it for you know six months to a year, and that's like considered a, a treat for them. And that's one thing that we don't really do in, in Western society. We tend not to eat many fermented foods. Um, and like you said, for a lot of people, sauerkraut, kimchi, those are an acquired taste, but I think that's just because we're so used to, you know, consuming so much fat and sugar, really you know, I've noticed that my son, who is now two and a half years old, when he was, you know, a baby, you know, there were foods that I just assumed he wouldn't like, like different vegetables or fermented foods, or I would even give him, I call them caviar, but they're really sort of a, it's called roe, like the fish roe. I would feed him those things. And he just loved, you know, savory foods that most Americans would, would uh, find uh, unappetizing, but his palate you know, was naive and he was, you know, would eat almost anything I gave him. But we're so used to eating, you know, fat and sugar as adults, you know, eating these foods that, you know, there's a whole other conversation with these foods that are really designed to, in some ways, be, you know, irresistible and almost addictive. You know, it's a lot of emerging research showing that these ultra processed foods that we, that I mentioned earlier, uh, can be addictive to a lot of people because the fat and sugar really hits these reward centers in our brain, even faster in some cases than, uh, you know, Um, other addictive substances that we know very well, like, you know, alcohol and and nicotine.
1: It has to just ring true if you just look at our society, right? I mean, what chance do we have of getting ahead of all this chronic disease, the explosion of autoimmune diseases with food that essentially is addictive, which we can just kind of go out on the limb and say, yeah, it probably is. A microbiome that's being constantly, you know, punished. Then mentally and emotionally, we're constantly punished. Every time the the traditional approach to our health fails, the medicines, the move more, eat less, the flipping tires in parking lots, the the chalky shakes, right? That weighing all your food, you can count points like Rain Man. When that Mm -hmm. fails, the scapegoat's always the human. So now you feel even worse. So you had this Mm -hmm. horrible day, you come home, you have these terrible cravings because your adrenal glands are firing all day long. And just like if you ran a marathon, you're gonna crave electrolytes. So you're gonna crave sodium, potassium, and sugar. Then you're not gonna go to the counter where there's a pineapple, right? Or an apple, you're going to go to the refrigerator, you're going to close that like there's too much work. And then you go to the pantry or as I call it, the coffin. And there's going to be your, your salt or your sweet. And if it's like a a very hectic day, you're going to have Hershey kitsches and pretzel sandwiches, just, you know, munching them down while you're defrosting a cheesecake in a microwave. And then you, of course you feel bad. Like, Oh, I'm just a bad person. And there's no pep talk. You can't have Tony Robbins in your closet to try to talk you off the ledge and Dr. Phil and Oprah, (laughs) you'll drop kick all three of them to get to that point, because you're so ravenous, it's really eye-opening to me that it's not just an issue with the human right now. So if I'm talking to a mom or a dad, I think what you just said for their children's sake is like, okay, you might've been battled with this. You're still battling with this in your forties, your fifties, your sixties, maybe it's your weight, maybe it's your high blood pressure. There is a very quick way out of it. And now that you can recognize all these detractors and roadblocks, Maybe go back to your children with what you just said, have eyes wide open and say, before their palate is fully developed, experiment with as many foods as possible during that time to give them that diverse array so that they have a diverse array of, of, of bacteria. Uh, to your point, high fiber, because you know people always ask me, doc, what's the best probiotic? I said, well, how much soil do you have? <laughs> right? Because you're not going to throw seeds in the desert. You got to make sure you have the fiber to ferment in the large colons for them to even live off of. Um. So I think most profound thing that any human that's trying to take care of their health, they immediately think of their kids, right, or their husband or their wife, right. They very yeah. rarely they're they're not thinking about themselves because they already have so doubt in their own health, but they're like worried about everybody else's health. So if you're worried about everybody else's health and right now you're not fully bought into your own potent health potential, which I promise you is there. Wow! If you could start introducing some of those foods early, like you did with your sons, your son, did you say?
0: Yes, my son
1: what's his name? Parker.
0: With Parker, yeah.
1: now, you know, he's going to establish that palate early and his life's going to be a lot easier because because of that. If you've not done anything else, right? Let's pretend. If you don't do anything else for a child, giving them an expanded palate is probably the the strongest way to ensure their longevity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, one of the most eye-opening things I saw before I became a parent uh, was this video on YouTube where um, you know, a woman takes uh, her friend's baby who I think was probably a uh, maybe like uh, about a year old at that time or so, or maybe a little younger. And uh, they did what they called, you know, a taste test, where they took like the typical American, you know, sort of Gerber jars of like typical American, like high sugar baby foods. And then they um, went to like a local Asian uh, grocery mart where they were able to to get um, these sort of imported foods, baby foods from Japan and Korea and other places. And instead of being like the high sugar, really sweet and fatty baby foods, they were things like, you know, fermented fish in a jar for, for a baby and like, you know, fermented vegetables and like these really savory things that most Americans would just find disgusting. And the 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 mom of the child was saying, oh, there's no way my kid's going to like those things. That's, those are just, you know, nasty. And so the the woman did the taste test where she started with these, you know, fermented, you know, foreign um, foods and the baby had no problem eating them. You know, the baby would just take a bite and be like, I <laughs> want more. And the mom couldn't believe it. And I think you know, part of this sort of, to me resonated because it showed that a lot of, you know, adults just sort of project onto their babies and think, well, you know, I don't like eating, you know, uh, this fermented food. So my child's not going to like that when that's not necessarily the case because they haven't lived in this food environment for decades where they're being bludgeoned over the head with all of these ultra processed uh, foods, you know, and I think that's you know, one of the problems with the American diet, because, you know, there is this epidemic of, you know, obesity and overweight and uh, metabolic diseases. Um, And, you know, like we talked about earlier, a lot of that is driven by obviously our lifestyle, but especially our diet. Um, And that's just because we live in a food environment where there are all these, you know, foods that are chemistry experiments, like I said earlier, Uh, you look at the top 10 foods that Americans are consuming, you know, where they're getting most of their calories from, I think number one is like, Uh, according to the CDC. Number one is like, you know, baked foods, baked uh, pastries, you know, donuts, bagels, you know, these simple carbs, you know, pizzas at the top of the list, you know, you have things like what they call chicken dishes, which is basically like fried chicken and like, you know, breaded chicken cutlets, those kinds of things. Soda is a big one, you know, and that's a food that people think of as, you know, obviously very high in sugar, but uh, soda, I have to remind people is also very high in salt and caffeine as well. Um so right. are mainlining sugar, salt, and caffeine, you know, throughout. And the- carcinogens. <laughs> yeah, there's all these other, you know, chemicals that are thrown in there, all these things that are thrown in there. So it's another <laughs> chemistry experiment to, to a certain extent. And there's now just a lot of emerging research showing that, you know, so many people are, are hooked on these foods because they have these very potent combinations of fat and sugar or simple carbs that hits your reward centers, you know, rapidly when you consume them. And one of the things that makes drugs, one of the things that determines how addictive they are is how quickly they hit your reward centers. You know, that's why, you know, someone who, you know, you smoke a cigarette and the nicotine hits your brain really quickly. That's even more addictive than let's say chewing tobacco because it takes longer to hit your system. Smoking any drug tends to be, you know, more addictive than like chewing or, you know, snorting it or something like that. And so we're consuming all of these, you know, ultra-processed foods that are hitting our reward centers really quickly. And one thing I've um, found that's really been eye-opening for me is, um, you know, these foods that are the top ten foods that Americans that are, are, are consuming, um, you know, they are very unlike any of the foods that are typically found in nature. Um, so it's highly, <laughs> highly unusual. It's, you know, name one food that you can find that grows in nature or that our ancestors, you know, hundreds of years ago would find in nature that is high in both very high in fat and very high in simple carbohydrates like sugar. We might get foods that are high in sugar, like a very ripe piece of fruit, but you know, there's very little of any fat in that, or we might get a food right. that's high in fat. Like if you, you know, if they were, if you were a hunter and you, you know, hunted an animal and you got a piece of meat that was full of you know fat and some protein, but you're not going to find any sugar or simple carbs in there. And now what we're doing is combining these things into these chemistry experiments. And there's a, um, a food addiction researcher at the university of Michigan named uh, Ashley Gearheart. Um, And she's written extensively about this and done studies, looking at how these foods impact people in their brains and looking at the foods that people find most addictive. And the top 10 foods that people find addictive are the foods that are high in fat and sugar. And she said something to me once where she was like, you're never going to see these foods in nature the only time you see foods naturally that are, you know, high in fat and high in sugar, there's only one that exists naturally. And that is breast milk, <laughs> you know, <and> <laughs> you know, it's, it's high in fat and high in sugar. And that's because, you know, as a baby, we need something that we're going to consume. That's number one, really high in calories and that we're going to find, you know, soothing. And that's going, that we're not going to want to stop, you know, that's going to you know, force us to, you know, consume as much of this food as as we can so that we can survive. And it's very, uh, I don't know what it says, but it's very strange to me that now the foods that, you know, that are the highest sources of calories in the American diet are these very unnatural, potent combinations of fat and sugar, which our ancestors would never, you know, recognize.
1: So it's no wonder that we spend over $12,000 per person on healthcare, and yet we still rank some of the lowest in the industrialized nation on on health. It's really disconcerting. You have the book, uh, The 10
0: Things You Need to Eat, and more than 100 easy and delicious ways to prepare them. Let's go with your top three. Um, I'd say number one for me is what I uh, called in the book, superfish. You know, that's one thing that you see around the world in these healthy populations is they tend to eat a lot of seafood, like wild salmon, for example, Uh, tend to be very high in omega-3s, you know, high in protein high in, you know, healthy, you know, fats, they have lots of vitamins and nutrients in them, you know, we need omega-3s for our our brain um, and cognitive development and and our brain health. We need omega-3s because they help to lower inflammation. You talked about inflammation earlier. We, and, you know, that's another component of these ultra processed foods is they tend to be very high in omega-6 fatty acids, which promote inflammation. And, you know, we need some inflammation to fight infections and viruses and diseases, but we don't want, you know, inflammation to run amok in our bodies. And so omega-3s can help to um, sort of tamp down this runaway inflammation that a lot of people unfortunately are suffering from. So um, for me, super fish. So I, I try to eat, you know, wild salmon as a source of protein um, throughout the week. And uh, it can be expensive if you buy it, you know, fresh from the, you know, from your um your local uh, grocery market or Whole Foods. Um, but you can actually find um, wild canned salmon at a lot of supermarkets for less than four or five bucks a can. And so that is something that I do often. I keep cans of, of wild salmon around and I use that um, as a good source of protein. If you're, you know, a vegan or a vegetarian and you don't, you don't know, want to consume uh, seafood, then there are other places where you can get, you know, good sources of omega-3s. You can find them, um, you know, in things like chia seeds. Uh, I think even avocados have uh, mm-hmm. some of them. Uh, number two is, uh, avocado for me. And that's easy for me because I live in California now, but, um, we're <laughs> in the U S and that is a, such a great food because it's, you know, it's a plant food that's, you know, has fiber has a lot of good, healthy fats. It tastes delicious. I find that a lot of people struggle with, you know, low fat diets, especially people who are going plant-based, you know, they want They miss things like butter and, uh, you know, dairy and, you know, they miss these ultra processed foods with a lot of fat and avocado is just, you know, such a great source of rich, heart healthy fats and uh, you can use it in salads and some people even make avocado ice cream. And then number three for me is just, um, I really love uh, fermented foods. I've really gotten into them lately. And like I was saying earlier, I think that uh, unfortunately in Western society, we've lost a lot of the, you know, fermented foods that were, that were part of the different cultures, um, you know, that people come from. And uh, we've talked about how important it is to feed your gut, you know, uh, fiber, um, you know, our guts thrive on on fiber, our, our gut bacteria need it, but you also need a diverse microbiome and fermented foods are living foods. You know, they have these, you know, people ask me, you know, like, what probiotic supplement should I take? And I say fermented foods because that's <laughs> fermented right. foods come yes. naturally rich with you know probiotics. And there was a recent study at at Stanford that I wrote about where they put people on a high fiber diet and then a separate group of people on a high fermented foods diet. And they found that the people who ate a lot of fermented foods had reduced inflammation. They had uh, much more diverse microbiomes. And the people who ate the high fiber diets, they found that you know after I think it was 10 weeks was a study. Um, They saw some improvements, but the fermented food group did much better. And the people who were put straight away on the high fiber diet, some of them actually had increased inflammation. And they think one of the reasons is because these were people who were eating, you know, your standard American diet who probably did not have very diverse microbiomes that were prepared for this high amount of fiber. Whereas, you know, our ancestors and modern hunter-gatherers, you know, have much more diverse microbiomes that are prepared you know, for the fiber that humans naturally consume high amounts of. And it seems like eating fermented foods is one way to seed your gut with beneficial microbes and to give yourself a diverse microbiome that seems to be associated with good health. And so I try to combine, you know, fermented foods with, um, you know, good amounts of fiber from a lot of plant foods.
1: Totally agree. Uh, You know, big, big staple in our house, uh, kombucha. In fact, I like try to wait to the big bottles at the bottom mm, and yeah. I, I try to grab all the good the goodness of it yeah. i have i have a question when it comes to fermented foods so let's just say you walk into whole foods they have a section now a lot of them have their fermented food section which is great you're starting to see some more awareness but they'll have um, a specific sauerkraut that you know they say is enhanced with probiotics if i just buy regular sauerkraut you know from a traditional store i go to Harris Teeter and i just buy traditional sauerkraut Does it still contain, uh, because it's fermented, still can contain the same amount of probiotic than some of these things that are being, you know, positioned to us as, you know, more probiotic friendly or is all sauerkraut fermented the same way and you're still going to get, you know, the same dose of probiotic with it?
0: Yeah. So uh, one thing they've shown, uh, the, the folks at Stanford who, you know, study fermented foods, they've actually found that most of the fermented foods that they've studied that they find in the refrigerated section tend to have the amount of probiotics and micro microbes that they say they do on the label, uh, and in many cases they actually have more than what's on the label because, like we were saying earlier, these are living foods. Continues to grow. Yeah, we'll say yeah, they're continuing to grow exactly. You know, so so as long as you're getting sauerkraut, uh, most of the sauerkraut tends to have you know pretty similar compositions of of, of probiotics. Um, The one distinction, though, is that you need to get it from the refrigerated section. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, they have sauerkraut, you know, in cans, you know, in a different part of the store. Can I just get that? And in that case, they typically will not have the probiotics because then those uh, types of sauerkraut are pasteurized. You know, they are heated so that they can be canned or put in those jars and kept at room temperature and shipped and all that stuff. And the pasteurization process, essentially heating the foods up at high temperatures actually kills the microbes. And I try to tell people it's the same thing as if, you know, if you had, you know, a child, you know, what a lot of parents would do to disinfect, you know, the kids pacifiers, you know, put in some boiling water or something. If you want to disinfect something, you put it in boiling water because that kills off the microbes. Well, it's the same thing, you know, if you're cooking uh, or heating up your sauerkraut or kimchi at very high temperatures, you're killing off those uh, living organisms in there. So, you know, as long as you're getting it in the refrigerated section and typically it'll stay, you know, fermented or live microorganisms or probiotics or something like that, all of those, uh, you know, tend to be fairly equivalent. So my, my recipe in the
1: morning is, so I'm an avocado guy. So is, uh, half, I do a hard boiled egg. I take fresh salsa, uh, half of avocado and then I take uh, a pinch of sauerkraut and I mix that together and that's Uh my, my morning. And it fills me up. I feel really good. Um, But I'm curious, to try that, it, it's yeah. It actually, it's, it it makes me, it's so savory that like I I could eat it all day long. Yeah, and incredibly nutrient dense as well. It sounds yeah, it, it, it's good. good. Now the the and it's funny because it has tomatoes. And I was listening to Tom Brady on a podcast, so I'm I'm always fascinated oh, with yeah. him because he you know he he was on uh, Dax Shepard's podcast, and I think it was armchair expert. Right. And it, Dax did a really great job of interviewing him, but I think he addressed him somewhere about the tomatoes because you know this is book the plant paradox. And I always tell people, I'm I'm like, listen, if you search hard enough, someone can prove that your diet is wrong and someone can prove it's right. Um, And for a while there, they were saying, well, Tom Brady doesn't eat lectins. I'm like, well, there's 6,000 species of lectins. So that's a pretty bold (laughs) statement for a man, you know, to just, he brought up, it's like, well, you don't eat tomatoes because of the lectins. He goes, no, I just don't like tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) But it it became this whole urban thing. Like if you just avoid tomatoes, you'll be like Tom Brady. Yeah, you'll
0: be a superhuman.
1: So with that with the fermented uh, we're on the same page there you know get them from refrigerated um as an example like with Better Health we have a supplement line it has uh it's a mixture of enzymes probiotics spirulina and vitamins and minerals and I did that and I tell people I'm like look food first sauerkraut first eating healthy first all that stuff this is just extra insurance but if you can't afford the extra insurance of supplements please put it into food first right because as you mentioned that probiotic pill that we're giving you're getting a fraction of what you could get from eating the fermented foods mm-hmm. and so now we go to another section of the of the food aisle which has your apple cider vinegars like from Bragg's and then a, you mentioned earlier soy sauce so because those things are at room temperature do you think that we're still getting a probiotic from an apple cider vinegar or is the we're just getting the other benefits of just apple cider vinegar uh, but maybe not the probiotic push from the apple cider vinegar
0: i think it's both and that, that's an excellent question I think with the vinegar, you know, there's been a lot of research and, and a growing amount of research into what are the benefits of just, you know, vinegar. Does it have, you know, blood sugar effects? Uh, you know, does it impact your glycemic control? And there's some research suggesting that, that, it, that it can, but obviously, you know, you have to consume a lot to see a substantial effect, um, but there's certainly no downside to that. But I, with apple cider vinegar, as long as it has the mother in it, and for people who don't know, that's sort of like the little, you can see this little disc in there sometimes that's kind of makes the apple cider vinegar murky or, or hazy. And that those that's the actual microbes in there, the collection of, my, of microbes. So as long as you're buying, you know, an apple cider vinegar, like Bragg's that, that has the mother in there that you can see visibly, then you're likely getting some pro- probiotic benefits. Got it. Because they're alive still. They haven't been pasteurized so that they're alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Uh, got it. And back to the Tom Brady thing. I I, I heard that too. So many people were saying, oh, well, Tom Brady doesn't, you know, eat nightshades. So, you know, and that works for him. So, you know, other people think, well, I need to do that too because it works for Tom Brady. So it's got to work for me. And like you said, a lot of that was just, uh, (laughs) so it took on a life of its own. But I try to explain to people, look, there have been tons of studies showing that, you know, eating peanuts and eating walnuts and almonds are, you know, these are such great foods. They have protein, fiber, you know, unsaturated fats. You know, tons of studies showing that these are good for heart health. You know, people eat these foods. You know, it's associated with a longer lifespan. Um, so you want to generally have these foods in your diet. You know, nuts and peanuts, that kind of thing. Um, but then there are some people who, if they have a peanut, it will literally kill them. You know, other people right. they have peanuts. You know, it will kill them or put them in the hospital. Um, and yet, that person who can't have a single peanut. Um, you know, they can have a glass of milk, and maybe they'll be fine. Yet, someone else will have a glass of milk, and they'll have bloating and terrible indigestion. And does that mean that, you know, that no one should eat peanuts, because it's deadly to someone or no one should eat tree nuts, because they're deadly to some people or right. no one should, you know, have, um, you know, eggs or, you know, shrimp or dairy, because, you know, other people will have an allergic reaction. No, it's all uh, individual. Um, so you have to look at the individual and, and Certain foods are going to work extremely well for you and not so well for other people. So don't just assume that because one person is doing one thing, it's going to work. Absolutely. And potentially, so here's one thing that when I work with people, I
1: say, all right, here's the other thing. You may have foods that you think don't agree with you, but you may not have had low inflammation and the proper microbiome to even do anything with them. Hmm. So you're already showing up with signs of inflammation and and a trigger uh, when really it might not be. And, and a good example of that is my son was born uh, a C-section. Mm. And immediately when he was a baby, he started having rosacea and all these issues with his arms and eczema and psoriasis. And we went to all these these uh, places. And, uh, and as you probably know, um, you know, your family never listens to you. Was, and in my case, especially my wife, when it comes to <laughs> nutrition and health. And I kept saying, I'm like, it's gotta be something you're eating because you're breastfeeding. He was cesarean, so he never got... And, and this is before I really knew much about gut bacteria. He never really got mother, right? That's where it came from. He never got the mother's first deposit of the good bacteria because it, he didn't get a pass through the va- bacterial canal. And uh, one of our podcast guests, Pedram Shojai from the Urban Monk said, his his friend was a surgeon. He actually, sm- the baby was born and then he actually smothered it all over the child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so my son never got that first deposit. And so then when we were checking out my wife, finally, after all these things, I said, you've got to be something you're eating. And she was a newscaster getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. She was eating rice cakes with peanut butter on it mm, oh, wow. and eating it every morning. She just forgot that wow. she would do that every morning. We took it out. Within two days, all of his his skin cleared up. But to this day, technically, he's allergic to peanuts and tree nuts. And potentially, and, they, and a lot of times I say, well, they outgrow it. Well, maybe they don't grow it all the time. Maybe it's we have to reseed his gut get him to the point where he actually can not have that sh- reaction to those things. Cause he can handle it better. Now I'm not going to experiment with them because yes. I know the old, <laughs> it's a, it's a dicey game. Yeah. But ultimately I see people w- w- have that same reaction with gluten, certain wheat where after they do this 30 day elimination reintroduction, and we put a heavy emphasis on fermented foods, suddenly like, you know, I can have cheese and it doesn't bother me. Like it did people with IBS and Crohn's, um, I always find it funny when people say, I'm like, do you know that there, we have no known etiology of IBS and Crohn's? We have no known etiology of diabetes too. We can correlate certain things, but we really don't have a definitive answer of why this happens. Yet you and I know what the definitive answer is. It's the processed foods, the stress, the singular bacterial colonies that are in there when they really need to be you know, diverse. And so in addition to the fermented foods, right? So you have the fermented foods, you're eating fiber. I think you mentioned that apples and oranges and blueberries, strawberries, and high fiber. What about kombucha? So people are nervous about kombucha because they talk about the sugar content along with the fact, yeah, it's got good probiotics, but am I also counteracting it because there's sugar in it? If you could speak a little bit about kombucha.
0: Yeah. And that is a problem. So that is why um, traditionally I, I tend not to consume too much, uh, kombucha because, uh, kombucha is one of these, uh, drinks where, you know, it's, it's, made from juice and you add the probiotics, the microbes, and they're consuming, you know, the sugar, uh, and converting that to enzymes, or, you know, if you let the process go on long enough, they could, you know, convert some of that to alcohol. That's why some kombucha has, you know, alcohol in it. Um, but oftentimes you will see, you know, I go to the supermarket and I say, oh, you know, there's this whole section in, in most. You know, especially high end supermarkets where they will have entire sections of just kombucha and fermented drinks. Uh, And if you look at, you know, I often do this. I take the kombucha labels, I flip the bottle around and I look and see how much sugar are in in these bottles. In some cases, it's like 10, 20 grams of of sugar. And it's like, well, you know, if you're consuming that much sugar, then, you know, that's going to outweigh almost likely any of the benefits from, you know, the probiotic that are in that beverage. And so, you know, I tend to avoid most kombucha. Um, but there's one brand I found that I like uh, called Revel, R-E-V-E-L. It's one of the few zero sugar kombucha brands out there. To, to give it a little bit of a sweet taste, they do add stevia, which is uh, a low caloric or zero calorie sweetener that comes from the stevia plant. And that, you know, is a little questionable. Some people, you know, don't like the some people hate the flavor of stevia. You
1: know, me can't stand it. I'd rather put a little honey in it, but no stevia for some reason. I just can't do it too.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's some people who hate stevia, and I totally understand. Some people think it has a very artificial flavor to it. I'm one of these people where I think I just have a very blunt palate. Um, You know, there have been studies of people who are, you know, where they actually look at the number of taste buds you have on or the density of taste buds on your tongues. And there are some people who are, you know, what they call super tasters, they have, you know, a lot of uh, high density of, uh, taste buds and on their tongue. I tend, uh, I'm not a super taster because <laughs> I you know, <laughs> love you know savory foods with very strong flavors that my wife thinks are disgusting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't mind uh stevia or uh you know monk fruit, those kinds of uh things, even allulose, which is the new uh low-calorie sweetener also from plants. Uh, so I like this one uh brand of kombucha called Revel, R-E-V-E-L, and it's zero sugar, um, but it does have stevia. Um, As an alternative to sugar in it, and for me, it works. And so i I use it as a treat. You know, I'm not like drinking them all day long because uh, I also don't want to bombard my body with you know these you know low calorie sweeteners because I also feel that you know there's some research showing that if you're consuming tons of you know these so-called diet sweeteners, that can have an impact on your your palate and cause you to develop you know a, a strong preference for sweet foods. So basically, you know I treat you know this this zero sugar kombucha as as a treat. Um, for myself, you know, here and there, um, probably four or five times a week. But I think what you mentioned, you know, getting a zero, uh, you know, a a kombucha and then adding a little honey as you know, to give it a little sweetness. I think that sounds great. That's a good alternative for people as well.
1: Yeah. I I almost want to do my own kombucha. I don't have the time for it, but I want someone to sell me a kombucha, no sugar in it. And then let me sugar to taste kind of like a a, a version of uh, unsweet tea. I'm supposed there's a market for just give me a shot of probiotic and I'll put it in any drink and just get it down, Yeah, uh, you know, just so I get the live,
0: live cultures. Well, have you tried these, uh, these gut shots now mm-hmm. that was something no. that was included in these, in this uh, Stanford study of fermented foods and high fiber foods, you know, they gave people um, an option of fermented foods. They said, we want you to consume at least six servings a day of fermented foods, but we're not going to say it has to be sauerkraut or it has to be, you know, this, they gave people a whole list of foods, you know, yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, and then some others that I'm I'm forgetting. Um, but one of the things that they found helped people reach the six servings a day of, of fermented foods was uh, these, these gut shots. If you go to the supermarkets and you look at the you know the kombucha section, there are these little containers of things called gut shots, and they I haven't actually tried them, but they're like a little fermented beverage that I think some of them might have like a little apple cider vinegar flavor to them some of them might taste a little better um but that is a fermented food that's really Ooh, that's good i'm gonna check that out so there's there's three more things
1: i want to touch on one of them you just nailed it was my last question about yogurt right so here you have the optivias of the world they're kind of getting hey you want good gut health you know we got this great yogurt i find most of them pasteurized um that say they have good probiotic in it Mm. um do you have a specific yogurt in, in mind that you think is, is a good probiotic that hasn't been actually
0: processed and pasteurized? Yeah. So I think with yogurt, you have to be really careful because that's another thing where it can be even worse than kombucha, where they can be just absolutely loaded with um, added sugar. You know, some of them you have like the fruit flavors where they'll add fruit and then add like cane sugar and all of a sudden like you're drinking a soda. So that's one thing you got to make sure it's, you know, I just tend to eat plain yogurt, you know, without any added strain. And then I add stuff to it. You know, I'll add, I like to drizzle a little almond butter or add some berries on top or raspberries, that kind of stuff. Typically, what happens is they pasteurize the milk. And then to make the yogurt, they add different strains of microbes. They use like a starter, you know, starter cultures to make the, the yogurt from the milk has been pasteurized, but typically, You know, with these brands, the yogurt itself uh, is not. And that's why you got it in in the refrigerated section. And you can usually tell if you just um, flip it around to the ingredients, they'll usually have a list of the, they'll even tell you the very specific, you know, microbes that they've added, you know, to the yogurt. Like a common one is, uh, I think it's L acidophilus, another one's L casei, C A S -S E I I. But if you flip it around and you see that it's not loaded with added sugar and they actually list uh, the microbes, you know, the different strains of probiotics they use, um, that's a good sign that, you know, what you're getting is, has actually been fermented and it's got the probiotics in there. So that's what I look for. Kefir is another one that I've started consuming uh, lately and I really enjoy that a lot. It's a lot, to me, it's a lot more sour than, uh, yeah so that's probably more of a acquired taste for people, but I like it.
1: And then lastly, you talk, you have this body work called My- Why Migraine Sufferers May Want to Eat More Fish. Can you explain uh, that to us?
0: Yeah, so that's a really, I think, good one to um, to discuss. Uh, just to go back to the computer thing really quickly, one of the fascinating things that I think you and your listeners will appreciate is that from this big Stanford study of fermented foods, where they had all these people consume you know these, these different fermented foods, um, and then they studied their microbiomes, they found um, in their guts new strains of microbes that they hadn't seen before and that you know they could tell didn't come from the actual fermented foods that they were consuming. And so there's still a lot more to learn about fermented foods and how they actually, you know, they were like, did, were these strains that were in these people's guts that we, you know, healthy beneficial strains activated, over we know were there and that now we're able to, they were in hiding, but now that yeah. you know, they seeded their guts with these, you know, uh, probiotics from these foods. Now these, you know, these very obscure strains were able to come out and thrive or, so there's still so much more to learn about how absolutely impact the gut and, and they're now being studied for um conditions like IBS and uh you know some of these other you know gut and digestive um uh you know uh, disorders that you mentioned. So there's uh we know that these foods have been a bit beneficial but there's a lot more to to learn and to unpack there
1: about how they're helping. I mean you got you have thir- you have over 31 feet cheek to cheek. So chances are there's some hidden strains in there somewhere and the, the nooks and crannies in the pockets that is the wonder of the digestive system. Yeah, uh, you know we, one of our uh, podcast guests uh, was P- Dr. Paul Wishmeyer from Duke University. Struggled with IBS and Crohn's his whole life. Medical doctor, you know, found using healing foods. But his his big thing is, you know, eighty percent of your immune system comes from your gut health, right? So, no time more now than ever if you're going to reach to fermented foods. Forget weight loss and and all the other benefits that come with you know eating healthy. But at the end of the day, at this during this pandemic, if there's any way we're going to you know, stave off a virus and more viruses to come and more strains to come is to get a healthy immune system. So uh, I think the your work on how fermented foods may alter your microbiome, like run out and get that right now, just for vitality and and life-saving measures. Now, to segue into this, migraine
0: sufferers and eat more fish. Can you explain the connection there? Yeah, so that um, goes back to something I was saying with you know. Uh, seafood being such a rich source of uh, omega-3 fatty acids which you know the body has these compounds that promote inflammation and then you know compounds that uh, decrease inflammation and they found you know we've seen in studies that omega-3s help to uh, reduce inflammation and omega-6 fatty acids help to promote inflammation and so these researchers who've been studying you know these lipids and these you know omega fatty acids um, wanted to see you know There've been studies showing that, you know, people who consume a lot of omega-3s, that it may help them with things like knee pain, joint pain. They thought, let's look at some other chronic pain conditions and see whether, you know, influencing the amounts of these fats in your diet can have an impact on, you know, whatever chronic pain condition you had. And and in this one particular randomized control trial that was carried out by researchers at uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, they decided to recruit a bunch of people who suffer from migraines. Um, and these are people who, you know, in a typical week they're experiencing one, two, three, maybe more migraines. And these are really serious migraines where, you know, they can feel them coming on. It's like blinding pain. Uh, you know, these people it's, it's, the pain is often so bad that they have to sit in a dark room. And so these people were recruited for this study at the NIH where they said, let's, um, put people on, on three different diets. One is the control diet where, you know, you keep consuming what you've been eating, Another one is a high omega three diet, where they told people to consume more fish and seafood, and um, you know chia seeds and flax seeds, which are plants that are high or seeds that are high in omega threes. And the third group was a group where they said, okay, we're going to put you on the high omega three fatty acid foods, but also eliminate a lot of the foods that are high in omega sixes, which are these ultra processed foods we talk about that tend to be very high in in things like uh, corn oil. Uh, canola oil, soybean oil, safflower oil. These oils tend to be very rich in omega-6 fatty acids, and they're used in a lot of like fried foods and, you know, packaged foods because they last a long time. So they compared these three different groups of people. I think the study was about six months. And they found that um, the people who were on the high omega-3 diet, they actually saw a reduction in their frequency of migraines. But the people who were on the diet that was high in omega-3s, and very low in omega-6s, they had the best or most improvements with the greatest reduction in migraines. And so for a lot of these people, it had a pretty big impact on, on their life. Just, you know, tinkering with the different fats in, in their diet, um, omega-3 and omega-6, it, it impacted um, their migraines, which is migraines, I believe, are the number one source of chronic pain in, in America. So, you know, you can imagine how life-changing that, that was for people.
1: Absolutely, I, and I can attest to that. I mean, the, the clients that come to us, they can come to us with migraines, diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'd love for you to write something on that. That's uh, one that's affecting so many women. Restless leg syndrome, eczema, psoriasis. You name it. When they come to us, but particularly with the headache sufferers, like if someone comes to you with acid reflux, generally just by switching their diet in the first four to five days, they come off whatever whatever acid reflux medication they were on. They can they can come off it. Migraine sufferers, when they come. Uh, to us, usually within the fifth or sixth day, they start to say, hmm, I only had one headache this week. And by the 10th or 14th day, they can see almost complete reversal, even if they've had headaches for t- 20 years. And this, they're always so amazed. And I said, you know, your body wasn't designed to have headaches, right? <laughs> like <laughs> This isn't a normal thing. There is a barrier to your body ex- expressing expressing health. And I actually have, have never been able to tell them why they went away until now. Thank you to, thanks to what you just shared with me. I just knew that, hey, we were changing our diet and their body's working better. But I never really took into account that the high omega 6 diet was probably causing most of that inflammation. And it's probably what's causing most of the inflammation in most of our clients. I was always so focused on let's give you the foods that help reduce inflammation mm. uh, and avoid some of foods that cause inflammation. But I didn't realize that balance was so critical. And so I really appreciate that because I think when now when our migraine sufferers come in, I can point them to your book. I can point them to this podcast and just let them explain that mixture. Because again, mentally locking it into someone's physiological brain, say, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Then they won't be so fearful they're going to come back because that's the other thing, right? The stress and the anxiety of, am I going to get one? No, you won't because we've actually eliminated the physiological approach to it to reduce that stress. So uh, thank you so much for that. I, you know, I've just been saying, people go, hey, thank you. I've got rid of my migraines. I'm like, good job. I'm happy for you. I could never explain why. I can't explain to you why I don't, on my first list, So I give people a starter list of foods to stick with. I don't have broccoli or cauliflower on the list. It's because I've I've made people take pictures of their lunch and dinner, log their mood, their sleep, their energy. I have all this data on them for 30 to 60 days. And then I've had now 30,000 people go through the program. And early on, I realized, man, Everyone who had broccoli and cauliflower seemed to have more digestion, bloating, didn't lose weight as fast. And so I took it off the list. And sure enough, when we they reintroduce it one by one, broccoli is still one of the number one culprits that cause yeah. people distress. And some people say, well, maybe it's because it's a cruciferous vegetable. And I'm like, well, I don't find the same as with other cruciferous vegetables. So maybe it's the way we process broccoli in this country. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it's supersized and, and maybe it's hiding pockets of pesticides. I'm not sure half the time when we when I've come up with this list, but it was just from trial and error observation. And then I also learned that when I put people through the expensive tests of like food sensitivity, uh, food trigger, even the gut microbiome tests that are supposed to tell you what foods to avoid, it gives them 50 pages of food they should, should avoid. <laughs> and if you take it six months later, it's different. Yeah. So I said, guys, let's just do <laughs> trial and elimination in your own environment. So you're not all stressed out, start with these specific foods. And then sometimes they want a scientific explanation of why I chose the foods. I'm like, this is just clinical observation. So you giving me that tidbit there is uh, very helpful. I think it's gonna help a lot of people and I appreciate it. Oh, you're very
0: welcome. And I think it's also fascinating what you said about broccoli and cauliflower because I've heard that anecdotally from a lot of people. Uh, I have family members who, you know, eat very healthy diets. They love eating vegetables and plants, but you know, they will not touch broccoli Um, or cauliflower, because they say they they immediately they get an impact, you know, they, they're more flatulent, they have, their bowel is bothering them. And I've heard other people say this as well. Uh, I'd love to see, um, you know, some food researchers do a study on that. That'd that'd be fascinating. Um, For me, I, I don't seem to have that problem with cruciferous vegetables. But there are some like onions, you know, or garlic, you know, that can have that impact on me. But back to what you're saying about, you know, the impact of food on on migraines and other aspects of pain and health, you know, I I talked to a um, a headache specialist, a neurologist who specialized in headaches at at Harvard, and she was very uh, enthusiastic about this study, even though she wasn't directly involved in it, because she said she had so many patients who would come to her with migraines, who you know were just looking for you know food solutions, you know, were trying to think, you know, is there something in my diet? What can I do? And just struggling, you know, with all these extreme diets, and just couldn't you know find something that seemed to To work for them and then the study comes along um, and shows that you know just by switching your diet in a very certain way adding more omega-3s reducing omega-6 fats people actually saw greater reductions in headaches compared to a lot of the medications that are prescribed for these headaches so food had an even bigger impact in this particular case and one of the things she said to me was that you know this study is really empowering for a lot of people and it shows that you know for some people um, if you're struggling with something you know, this shows that, you know, food can have an impact in some cases, you know, and it, that's very empowering for people because it's something that people have a lot of control over. You know, we, can, we have a lot of control over what we put in our mouths. And if you find a direct connection between what you're putting in your mouth and, you know, the levels of pain you're experiencing or the fatigue or disease or, you know, that gives people a lot of control over their, their health. So it's very empowering for a lot of patients.
1: Which they should be. Why is it so hard? We, we, we really designed to put on this earth to suffer, right? Like, do we really need someone to play chemistry set with us? Medicines are phenomenal when you're on the battlefield, right? When you're in triage mode, you're in the battlefield, they save lives, they come in, but not for the playing field. We, we need to be on the playing field and use food first. Then I, in all the years I've been doing this, I can tell you, I don't think I've had anybody that came to me suffering from migraines that their migraines didn't go away almost in 14 days. And again, I always tell them, this isn't me. This is you figuring out what works. You weren't designed to suffer. Your body's constantly fighting for homeostasis. There's only a barrier to that expression. What is that barrier? Let's just figure it out. And if we don't think food first, and then now, luckily, the research is finally caught up where you know the the scientific instruments can actually showcase how important the microbiome is. Hippocrates is the one who said this thousands of years mm-hmm. ago. Look well to the gut for all disease. We're acting like this is cutting edge science. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been using fermented foods. You know, since the beginning of time and we've just overcomplicated it and we always need to pinpoint something. It's like the human should not. It shouldn't be this hard to just exist in homeostasis. And it's something in our environment. And if you look to the environment, not outside for health, look inside, people will have a much easier time, much more empowering time. And it's much simpler than we make it. The work you're doing is phenomenal. I think you made the best choice ever not going to medical school, and you have such a curious mindset that this is really helping you uncover these things. Your upbringing with your family, like I, I love loved reading some of your work. Keep it up. What's next for you? What are you writing about next? Can you give us
0: a, a sneak peek, a, a, a little spoiler? Oh, I'm always on the hunt for new things to write about, and uh, and, and thank you for those kind of words. I appreciate it. Um, what's next for me, you know, I'm always looking at, you know, these different foods that people are consuming. I've been doing a lot of coverage of alcohol lately. I think that's, you know, another uh, silent epidemic, you know, especially during the pandemic, people started consuming much more alcohol to, to cope with, you know, all the chronic stress and the fear and anxiety that people were struggling with. So I've been doing a lot of reporting on, on, you know, the relationship between alcohol and health, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that, uh, moderate drinking is, is heart healthy and, you know, good for your health. But I think, you know, a lot of that is based on very poor and bad evidence. And now research is showing that even small amounts of alcohol for some people can, you know, can cause, you know, detrimental health problems. So that's, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the the relationship between moderate drinking and health that I'm reporting on. Uh, I've also been reporting a lot on um, other aspects of, of health and lifestyle, like sleep, you know, that's something where, you know, we talk about, you know, how badly, you know, we eat, you know, a lot of us sleep very badly too, you know, we're not getting enough sleep. And that's so integral to, to functioning throughout the day and and to health. And there's, you know, these strong relationships now that we're seeing in studies between poor sleep and heart disease and diabetes and obesity and inflammation, you know, when you're not giving your body enough sleep, you're, you know, causing your body to go into fight or flight mode and causing hormones like adrenaline that are going to help the spike, you know your heart rate and inflammation, and so I'm always looking to help inform people about things that they can do or habits they can follow to improve their health. So I've, d- I've done a lot of reporting on food, and I'm also reporting on alcohol and sleep and exercise and and you name it.
1: That's amazing. So uh, we will have
0: you back for the alcohol one when my co-host Aaron is here,
1: who will fight you tooth and nail, who loves her her wine and her te- tequila. So there will be a good one. Good. Uh, I, lo- love do- I look hey, forward to a spirited yeah.
0: debate. Yeah, You've let's been in an- it.
1: Absolute pleasure. My people are going to, pun intended, eat this episode up. Uh, Keep up, where can they find you? Where can they they hear more from you and learn more about you?
0: Uh, So the best place to find me is uh, right now in the pages of the New York Times. My stuff usually comes out on Tuesdays in the science and health section, Um, or you can find me on the New York Times website on the well um, section. So nytimes.com slash well, Um, you'll see my articles there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. My handle is just at Anahad O'Connor, A-N-A-H-A-D-O-C-O-N-N-O-R. Um, just type in my first name and I'm sure it'll come up. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a great, uh, great to be here. Great chat. Great
1: Absolutely. Chat. Thanks for listening, everyone, to The Better Podcast brought to you by betterhealth.com. For episodes, be sure to subscribe to this feed on the podcast app you're using right now. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Bill Farrow, and we'll see you again on The Better Podcast. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.